Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On today's episode, I speak to Representative Ro Khanna. Representative Ro Khanna is a Democrat representing California's 17th district. He's also the co-chair of the Bernie Sanders for President campaign. I also speak to Margaret Kimberly. Margaret Kimberly is an editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report, and she is the author of the book, Hot Off the Presses, Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. You can see Margaret and hear her read from her new book uh, at a couple of events, which is really exciting. She will be at Strand Bookstore in New York City Monday, February 3rd. She'll be at the People's Forum New York City Tuesday, February 4th. Greenlight Bookstore Brooklyn, February 13th. Thank you so much, uh, Representative Khanna, for joining me again. You're one of um, the, f- the, fav- the favorites of the Katie Halper Show. You're a repeat offender. Um, <laughs> And, well, uh, I, I appreciate your continuing to have me on. Yeah, of course. I'm a yeah, big fan of the show. Thank you. Um, tell us what you're working on now, and what um, you think the priorities are right now, because it's kind of overwhelming. There's so much happening in the world, and there's so much scary stuff. Well, this week, uh, Speaker Pelosi has scheduled a vote on Senator Sanders and my bill to stop the funding for a war in Iran. Uh, we had passed this amendment actually two months ago, and it was part of the National Defense Authorization Act. And Senator Sanders and I fought, and we said, do not give the Pentagon $738 billion, a blank check, without having the restriction on no funds go to a strike against Iran or Iranian official. Uh, We lost that battle. Uh, The leadership stripped that amendment. Uh, As a result, we saw the Soleimani killing. I mean, literally, that killing would not have happened if our amendment was in the National Defense Authorization. So now we're finally going to get another vote. Uh, The House is going to again say that we should not have funding and we need to then fight uh, in the Senate. But Congress is the most powerful branch when it comes to these things. We shouldn't just look to the executive branch. We have the power to say we're going to cut off the funds to stop any of these wars. And do you know who exactly blocked it? Is that uh, public information? It's unclear. I I guess stripped it, yeah. We do know that Jared Kushner was very involved in the actual negotiation that the uh, Pentagon was pushing back. Uh, And for whatever reason, uh, we decided on our side not to fight. Uh, I believe we should never have given the $738 billion to the Defense Department and said, look, if you want your uh, funding, have those amendments. And there were some of us, progressives, people like Pramila, Paul, myself, Mark Pocan, who were willing to even swallow the $738 billion. I mean, we obviously all oppose it. We think it's uh, ridiculous to have a $120 billion increase from uh, Obama. But we had even said, okay, look, if you keep the amendments in there to stop the war in Iran, to stop the war in Yemen, uh, we'll consider supporting it. But we're not going to support ridiculous defense increases without any restrictions on the Pentagon. Uh, and still, uh, we were not willing to fight. We gave them the $738 billion at the objection of the entire Progressive Caucus and did not have a single restriction. Why aren't all Democrats on board with this? There is a sense that that we have to produce military budgets because we have to be strong on national security. And I think what we need to say to the country is, look, uh, we understand that 9-11 was traumatic and a deep offense against America. And since then, uh, we took out al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We've strengthened uh, the Department of Homeland Security. We've strengthened our counterterrorism. But these endless wars, these wars where we've got presence in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, in uh, involvement in Yemen, sending more troops uh, on Iran, that's actually spreading terrorism. That's making us less safe. That's draining our resources. That's an ineffective national security vision. And we have to be confident that we have the better national security vision for the nation. Right, especially since it's so popular or it's increasingly popular I should say it's increasingly unpopular to get involved abroad. Um, Americans, you know, the stats show that they don't want that. And that's actually something Donald Trump, although he's being totally aggressive and um, interventionist in the case of, for instance, Iran um, with the with the assassination, uh, he ran on a kind of isolationist platform, which he's, of course, not particularly faithful to because he's not ideologically consistent or honest. But right. why do, do you think the Democrats don't... Um, they're not some of them, the ones who are more hawkish, I should say, are, are they not in sync with what the rest of the country wants? Do you think that they have a kind of old school ideology where you which you were referring to? Uh, you know, we have to be strong on national security. 
uh, even when it hurts our security, ironically. I do think that they're out of touch with the anti-war sentiment, the weariness of these endless wars, uh, the sense that people rather that money be going to build our infrastructure, to provide health care, to provide education. Uh, they don't think that uh, these wars lasting 10, 15 years uh, have made America uh, safer. So there is some uh, out, people who are out of touch. The other thing is that our position is not uh, isolationist. I mean, we have progressives right. have argued for cooperation to tackle climate change, cooperation to tackle global poverty, to fight disease, to uh, align on uh, non-proliferation and uh, diplomacy to solve problems. So you can engage in the world, uh, but we shouldn't be engaging in the world with uh, just our military. Yeah, just to clarify, um, I didn't mean that that progressive should be or that you are isolationist. I was just saying Donald Trump did run on that line. And I think that you know, he he appealed to people who are tired of the endless wars, um, which doesn't mean that they need an isolationist line. That just happened to be his. Um, I, I agree with that. I, yeah. I agree. And I think he made it a big deal. And uh, we shouldn't let him get away with the hypocrisy of uh, how he's actually governed and uh, the chaos he's caused in Venezuela, the chaos he's causing in Yemen, the chaos he's causing in Iran. He has not lived up to the promise of being uh, a great, greater restraint. And of course, he's undermined our leadership where we should be more engaged. He's been isolationist. And um, do you get criticism from your fellow Dems for, you just mentioned cooperation. Do you ever get criticism from them for cooperating with Republicans on issues that have bipartisan or postpartisan uh, support, such as your more anti-war uh, positions? And, and you know. Yes, you I know. do. I mean, and they'll say, how can you talk to uh, Francis Rudy or Matt Gates or so-and-so, right. and they'll say, well, look at where they are on impeachment. And I said, we vehemently disagree on that, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to build as big a coalition for any of our goals, whether that's stopping wars, whether that's expanding public education to college, whether it's Medicare for all. Uh, I won't compromise on where I think the country needs to go, but if I could find common ground uh, on areas uh, where I disagree with people on 90% of uh, other things, then I believe we have to build those coalitions. Yeah, it seems like there's not this, there's this kind of almost jingoistic, nationalistic view of, of politics from a lot of um, people who I would say are pride themselves on being progressive, where foreign policy is considered like separate from, from, from our politics at home. Um, and I think it's really dangerous and uh, that, you know, one of the biggest things that, that the president can do, for instance, is decide whether or not to go to war. Um, and I find there to be a disturbing dis vein of discussion where, um, for instance, with, Sen with Senator Sanders, um, he's being criticized for being anti-war, uh, which he's not consistently 100 percent, but he's, he sees it as a last resort. And people are I've seen people say, well, that makes him unqualified to be commander in chief. That's a... Uh Absurd argument. Yeah. If anything, we wanted a commander in chief uh, to show restraint. And the Senator Sanders is not a pacifist. Right. I mean, he was for the strikes in Afghanistan. He believes now that the yeah. AUMF was too broad and lasted too long. Right. Uh, but he initially thought that we were completely justified uh, in going after the terrorists who uh, hit us on 9 11. He's authorized strikes in the past in, uh, or was for. Uh, the United Nations doing something in Kosovo. So yeah. he, he is not uh, against the use of the military when it comes to protecting our homeland uh, or in grave humanitarian situations. But he believes in the Constitution, that you have to get constitutional authority. And he believes that you don't go into these endless wars that are unwinnable, where Donald Rumsfeld said, we don't know who the enemy yeah. is, literally sending troops there. Known knowns, known unknowns, unknown knowns, unknown knowns. Yeah. Um, and he did admit he said it was a mistake, Afghanistan. And he I think it was Barbara Lee, correct, who was the only person who voted against it. Right. I think what Senator Sanders position was is that he believes the initial strikes were justified, but he does not believe that the Congress should have given a, a, right. a, a blank check okay. of right. authority, which was going to last uh, till now uh, and not have a geographic restriction. And Barbara Lee was a prophetic voice in right. saying uh, that you can't just give the president this blanket authority. And the amazing thing is there are even Republicans now, many Republicans who even believe these wars have been correct, who agree with Barbara Lee that that uh, authorization was way too broad. Right. 
Why do you think there's this interesting overlap between um, some Democrats and some Republicans that doesn't exist among all Democrats, for instance? I think they understand our national uh, security challenge uh, long term is China in terms of who will lead the 21st century. Now, I believe we have to cooperate when it right. comes to climate change and uh, advancing science, but uh, they see that China is the long term challenge to American leadership. And then if you believe that, uh, and we're 21% of the world's GDP, China's 15%, Iran is 0.44%. So they say, China isn't in these wars. They haven't been in a war since 1979. Why is America draining our treasure, uh, sacrificing our lives in these wars that aren't directly related to our national interest? And that's where there is an alignment with progressives who also see the moral uh, case, uh, and uh, conservatives who are strictly national security right. lines think this is a mistake. And let's talk about impeachment. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the impeachment? Well, he, he's the president should be impeached. He's committed high crimes and misdemeanors. He's bullied a uh, leader of a foreign country to get dirt on his political rival. I mean, I would be concerned if the president used the apparatus of the government uh, to investigate anyone, let alone uh, his political rival. Uh, and it's sad to me that uh, the, with the evidence so overwhelming, you still have uh, Republicans so reluctant to uh, vote even to hear the evidence. It, it just shows how polarized our country is, how uh, we're really living in uh, two different uh, regions of the nation with different sets of facts and different sets of accountability. Um, Congresswoman Pelosi said that she thought, obviously, she supported the impeachment now of Trump. She was asked about why this impeachment and not of George W. Bush. Um, I don't know if you heard that, if you heard her response. But she said that she knew that Bush was misrepresenting the facts. Um, she was on the Intelligence Committee, but she still defended not impeaching him um, and also defended impeaching Trump. What do you think of that? Uh, I guess I should ask you, do you think that George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush should have been impeached? I don't think he should have been impeached. I don't think he should have ever been given the authority to go to war. I think the difference is that Congress gave him the authority to go to war. Congress authorized the funding. Congress authorized... Uh, the surge. So Congress shares a culpability. George W. Bush wasn't acting unconstitutionally. He was acting uh, in in concert with uh, with Congress. Uh, and the responsibility lies, in my view, equally with the Bush and with Congress. Now, Pelosi voted right. against the war, uh, but right. I think that's a critical distinction. I mean, it would be one thing if Congress had voted as a body to say that we should withhold aid to Ukraine unless Ukraine investigates Joe Biden. I mean, they would never right. do that. But let's say Congress had overwhelmingly voted for that. That would be a much more ambiguous case. Um, but what about his misrepresenting the truth? I mean, did he isn't lying impeachable? I'm sorry. If well, I think it depends. I mean, I think if it's is it willful misrepresentation right. or was he misinformed by his own intelligence agencies? My sense is he may have been uh, misinformed and he obviously uh, uh, had a great, gross error of judgment. But there's not evidence that he intentionally misrepresented something for his own political benefit. I mean, if there were emails saying that uh, George W. Bush misrepresented getting into war in Iraq because he thought it would help him win re-election, I think that's an analogous situation to uh, a president misrepresenting for political gain. Um, what do you think about, uh, this is something that doesn't get discussed that much, but a big debate, you know, what 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 Trump was pausing, right, or freezing was aid arming Ukraine in a in a war against Russia. What do you think of that? Because that's something that Obama himself had stopped, and now uh, Congress, I guess, voted to reinstall it, um, reimplement it. Yeah, I, I'm skeptical of that. I don't think we need to be uh, arming uh, Ukraine or arming uh, other nations uh, in in terms of provoking uh, conflict. Uh, and uh, I'm for economic aid, uh, but to the extent that it's military aid, I'm uh, I'm skeptical of that. But that doesn't in any way justify uh, Trump using right. these tools uh, to uh, sabotage uh, a political rival and uh, hurt a political rival. Of course, right. There, I just wonder if you think that that should be part of the discussion. I mean, I get that that doesn't undo the justification for impeachment. But uh, it does seem like one of the weird consequences of Trump's being in office is that Democrats 
are not that coherent in the way that they oppose him. Like they oppose anything he does as opposed to opposing him when he does things that are more, let's say, hawkish or belligerent. Um, there's a kind of reactive opposition to Trump. I mean, I think the main thing is that we have to oppose him because of his violations of the rule of law and not recognizing the separation of powers. And that's the central case against him. But there are areas and things he's done that I have supported. I supported his uh, diplomacy efforts in North Korea. Now, right. maybe I don't recommend that he should have met face to face uh, in those initial meetings. He should have probably sent the team over. But the reality is his own team was undermining him. So he's sort of fighting his own bureaucracy. Uh, and I support his I'd call for withdrawal of troops. I would right. have done it in a more responsible way in Syria. But the instinct of getting out uh, uh, makes sense. So I, I think there can't just be a reflexive opposition. There has to be thoughtful opposition. Uh, but we shouldn't underestimate that his total disregard for the rule of law, uh, which is a real threat to our democracy. Right. What about the strategic angle? Um, um uh, Senator Sanders, you know, said during a debate, uh, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But he's in terms of impeachment and also running, um, running against Trump, but also running for something. Um, what do you yeah. say about is there a danger of a focus on impeachment over the bread and butter issues affecting Americans? I think, look, this impeachment trial is going to end, whether it's in another week or two weeks, even if we hear from John Bolton and some of the witnesses. So uh, I do think that at the end of the day, uh, the American people have made up their mind about this president. They know this con his conduct. They know his tweets. They know his character. And what it, we have to do is convince people of our vision that how are we going to improve their health care? How are we going to improve their wages? How are we going to improve their education and their infrastructure? Uh, and that should be the core of our message heading into 2020. Um, do you think that uh, are you worried that this takes Sanders off the, the trail? I mean, yeah, or Sanders. I'm and, not, and, yeah, sorry. You know, I mean, his numbers keep going up. Right, I mean, so, I, yeah. I maybe, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, and I think the reason it, it, they, they've gone up is, of course, his grassroots organizing, his anti war uh, advocacy. If you look at his numbers in early January uh, and uh, you look at the Soleimani killing and his strong response uh, right after we introduced this legislation, uh, his poll numbers almost directly correlate uh, to his strong anti war. Uh, advocacy, especially in a state like Iowa, where Chuck Grassley opposed the uh, the Iraq war. Uh, so uh, my view is that uh, uh, also being a juror in impeachment is in, in some sense an advantage in the Democratic primary. He, along with Senator Warren and Klobuchar, are getting to hold this president accountable. And Biden and Buttigieg are sort of absent from the main conversation. So I don't think it's hurt him. And how do you think the Dems can prevent Trump from spinning this as like a persecution or a witch hunt where he kind of uh, doubles down on his criticism of being unfairly? Well, one, yeah. Persecuted. I mean, when you've got your own national security advisor saying you're lying, right. uh, it's very hard to believe that it's a witch hunt. You could, uh, I think the, the best case for him, which he isn't making because he's so proud, is that he did something wrong and he should beg for mercy and say, look, I, I don't think it should be impeached. But uh, it was I don't see how he could justify uh, what he did. And when you talk in private to Republicans, that's what they end up telling you, that they think it was wrong, but they think it's too traumatic for the country to, to remove him. Now, I disagree. I obviously voted for impeachment. Uh, I believe that it sets a terrible precedent for future presidents if we uh, allow this action to stand. Um, but what would happen if he had if he were removed? Well, Pence would assume office. Right. And do you think that would be a more dangerous or less dangerous world? Well, we would crush Pence. I mean, Donald Trump, I, I dislike him, but right, he's right, a much right. more talented better, right. campaigner than, than Pence. I mean, I'd much rather face Pence. But, uh, uh, you know, but the the reality is that uh, Pence uh, uh, ideologically could be even uh, more extreme. We right. don't know. Uh, but the Constitution calls for us doing our, our, our duty. I actually interviewed Christian Parenti, um, who uh, is a great uh, writer and thinker and uh, professor of economics at John Jay. He wrote a piece for Jacobin about um, impeachment without class politics. And his argument is that given that nothing was going to happen to Trump, the impeachments were mm -hmm. um, a, an opportunity for like political education and, and spectacle, uh, and that the Dems should have gone after him on the emoluments clause. 
but that they couldn't have because that would have required looking into the their the corruption of some of the of of the, the Democrats themselves. What do you think of that argument? And should it have should the basis have been the emoluments clause? I think the emoluments clause should have been a basis as well that he's been profiting off his own office. Uh, I I don't think it would have exposed vulnerability. I mean, most members of Congress I serve with uh, do follow ethical rules and aren't profiting off their positions. And if there are a few bad apples and they get exposed, fine, uh, let's do that. Uh, I, I think the speaker made the decision to keep it very narrow, the focus of, uh, on Ukraine, because it's something that could unify the caucus. Uh, but I would have supported adding emoluments. I agree that that's something that uh, average people, ordinary people can understand. Um, I saw that you were quoted in an article today from the New York Times about Bernie's uh, online, like the alleged Bernie bros. Um, right. I, I, of course, as someone who uh, I'm a woman and I've defended Sanders a lot, and it's very frustrating to be to see people who are smeared for supporting Sanders. Um, do you, it seems like the the that narrative is really being weaponized by critics of Sanders uh, to distract from how well he's doing. Uh, well, I think we have to cool the rhetoric on all sides. I mean, right. I think there are many, 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 many Bernie Sanders supporters online and on the ground who are exceedingly nice or exceedingly thoughtful, exceedingly polite, who are supporting him because he's taking on the war uh, and the establishment with war, or take, who's taking on the pharmaceutical company, the insurance companies. Right. Now, they're angry sometimes at the hypocrisy of people in power, at their inability to allow for change. Uh, but Anger should not be uh, misconstrued for uh, bullying or harassing. Right. There are cases, though, where I think uh, things cross the line. Sure. I mean, I don't think you should be people should be sending snake eyes to Senator Warren, uh, given her uh, uh, history and uh, contributions to the progressive movement. I mean, she's accomplished a lot. She created yeah. the Consumer uh, Protection right. Financial Agency. Right. So uh, there's there's a line where. Uh, I think we do have to speak out and call out, sure. uh, but uh, to lump and stereotype right. uh, all of Bernie's supporters for the actions of a few is not fair. Yeah, and also no one pays attention to the fact. I mean, Brianna Joy Gray, Nina Turner um, have had terrible racist, sexist, misogynist things said about them. They have, and nobody talks about that or condemns that. And in fact, in today's Times article, they quote people, some of whom have engaged in really toxic um, behavior themselves and said horrible things to people. And um, vulgar things. So I'll be writing about that. It's really infuriating. I, I know firsthand with Senator Turner, who I know yeah. well because she's a co-chair of the campaign as right. well. I mean, she has faced uh, extraordinary misogyny, yes. extraordinary racism, and uh, she doesn't. Uh, she just deals with it with dignity. But right. Uh, you're right that uh, the other side of the story is is not told, and it's uh, often not told how many women now are supporting That's Senator right. Sanders. Progressive women. I mean, Pramila Jayapala. AOC, Ilhan, uh, Rashida. Obviously, you couldn't have some of the most progressive women of color in the House supporting him if he really had a uh, platform that was insensitive uh, to a multicultural, right. multiracial democracy. Right. Not to mention now his base is also the least white and the least male of all the other candidates. Um, so yeah. there's a real, I mean, I think that that's the, the, the narrative about the Bernie bro as an exclusive phenomenon of Sanders fans does a real disservice and it really invisibilizes a lot of the women, a lot of the people of color who support him. And anyone who takes sexism and racism and homophobia seriously know that they're not exclusive, the exclusive realms of any one uh, candidate's uh, supporters. So, and. Surely uh, put. Yeah, thank you. Uh, any final uh, words? Well, I would just say that we have a unique moment in history to usher in a progressive movement after Trump, and it would be an incredible waste if uh, we don't do that. Uh, we have a chance to get us out of these bad wars, to focus on tackling climate change, to build up our infrastructure, to finally get Medicare for all, which, by the way, our party has been fighting for since Harry Truman, 75 years. It was in our platform until 1980 to expand public college, to include public education, to include college, to include early childhood education. These are things that will make a real difference in people's lives. And uh, we have that opportunity, and I hope uh, progressives will come together to, to win the nomination, win the election, uh, and start getting these progressive uh, policies enacted. And um, any, anything you want calling on people to do, like uh, besides the, your colleagues, the, the civilians, what can we do? 
Well, I, I just think advocating for the policies. I think if you advocate for the policies, we're on such high, high ground. We know Medicare for All saves money and provides better health care. We know saves getting lives, out of the right. doors saves lives and uh, gives our priority for uh, things that are going to improve our country. We know that in a 21st century economy, we need more education and everyone should have access to that. We know that we need stronger unions so that you don't have the stagnancy of uh, working wages. So we... All we need, and people are so desperate for, is smart, progressive governance. I don't think that's too much to ask for. I mean, you've seen it in other nations, and right. our nation is certainly capable of it. Right, and somehow the only question the media asks in terms of how we're going to pay for it are programs like that. They never ask how we're going to pay for war. Yeah, I mean, no one points out that the $120 billion that Trump increased the defense budget from where Obama left it uh, would pay for free public college for everyone and would pay for uh, school lunches for everyone, and you probably still have money left over. So uh, it's a question of our values, not uh, necessarily our budgets. Right. And and the, and these are all mainstream positions. That's the other thing. The media likes to pretend that these are fringe or not viable. And the only people where it's only among political elites and the media elites where these things aren't don't have mass support. So and some of the questions are uh, are, are a double standard. Jimmy Carter ran on single payer mandatory health care in 1976. Why? Because that was our party platform until 1980. The New York Times asked him, how will he pay for it? And he said, I'll figure that out when I'm president. And that was the end of the conversation. Right. No one thought, said, oh, Jimmy Carter was not giving us details. And the reason is because when you take these things into committee and you have right. people have an input, then you finalize a lot of the costs. And the reality is Senator Sanders and for that matter, Senator Warren have been more detailed about their plans than anyone else in the race and then probably any other presidential candidate. And so the attacks on them uh, are uh, not fair in comparison to the scrutiny that other people running for president have faced. Right. Well, I'll have to have you on another time to talk about media bias and where that comes from. But thank you so much for talking to me. And I know you have another thing to do and probably some really important war to stop. Um, uh, so thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you. Thank you for having your voice out there. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This is great. Margaret Kimberly is an editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report, and she is the author of the book, Hot Off the Presses, Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents is a concise, authoritative exploration of America's relationship with race and Black Americans through the lens of the presidents who are elected to represent and govern all of its people. Cornell West calls it, quote, an intellectual gem of prophetic fire about all the U.S. presidents and their deep roots in the vicious legacy of white supremacy and predatory capitalism, end quote. Credential will be published by Steerforth Press on February 4th. She will be at Strand Bookstore in New York City, Monday, February 3rd. She'll be at the People's Forum, New York City, Tuesday, February 4th. She'll be at Wooden Shoe Books, Philadelphia, February 11th. Sankofa Books, Washington, D.C., February 15th. Bus Boys and Poets, Washington, D.C., February 16th. Greenlight Bookstore, Brooklyn, February 13th. Uncle Bobby's, Philadelphia, February 20th. Harvard Bookstore, February 28th. Source Bookseller, Detroit, March 7th. And you can find out more information about these events at her Twitter, Freedom Ride Blog. Again, that's Freedom Ride Blog. What made you think of writing this book in the first place? Did you have a certain epiphany? I had written uh, a column in my black my black gender report column about Theodore Roosevelt. There was a uh, something on public television, you know, about Theodore Roosevelt. He was so wonderful, and I watched, and I was like, "Oh my God, he was horrible. He was a he was a racist personally. He um, had these uh, black soldiers executed. He waited till after election day." because black people were Republicans at the time. That was the party of Lincoln, so the early 1900s. So uh, after black people went out and voted for him, he, he, you know, these black soldiers who had been arrested on trumped up charges, some of them were executed, some of them got life prison sentences because they fought back against a, a mob. And um, another thing, he was an imperialist. He bragged about the superior of white people. So I write this column and someone says to me, a friend of uh, Black Agenda Report said, you know, there's a book here. You should write about all the presidents. And I, I thought about it and I said, okay, I, I can do that. And it was, it was interesting because I, there were certain presidents I knew a lot about. I, some of them was a little hard to say, you know, something about uh, 
I think it was William Henry Harrison was president for 30 days. He, he died from pneumonia, but you know, so I had to write about what he did before then. Um, but how, how, um, uh, the experience of black people is told in uh, American history. We start out with the first presidents, except for John Adams, the first five or six presidents were all Virginia slaveholders, all of them. There were 12 presidents who were slaveholders. There were the ones who weren't slaveholders bowed down to what was called the slaveocracy. Uh, Lincoln, he wanted to uh, save the Union. He did not care about ending slavery. He um, was willing to, um, he was assassinated, of course, and couldn't make it happen, but he was willing to bail out the South for millions of dollars. Um, the Emancipation Proclamation freed slaves who were, uh, who were already in Union hands. It didn't free anybody else. It, it, um, it did establish that um, uh, there would be uh, the U.S. colored troops and, and uh, uh, black soldiers could fight in the war, which helped win the war, which he acknowledged. But he also had a colonization plan and he began to make good on it. There was a ship that took black people out of the country to Haiti and it failed. Most of them died from illnesses and, and it was ended. But he wanted and he told someone this about a week before he was assassinated. He, his goal was to get black people out of the country. He wanted America to be a white nation. And um, then we have the dis disappointments of uh, Reconstruction, then out-and-out -out racists like Woodrow Wilson. And there's a litany of disappointments in presidents. So first, Republicans are the ones we support. Now it's Democrats we support. We give our votes to one party, hoping they will save us or at least minimize the damage done by the other party. Um, and that has not changed. And the details change and the presidents change. But um, that uh, problem that uh, black people have in trying to navigate this system uh, never quite works out for us. And um, I, I think the... I, I can only conclude we need we need a complete top to bottom change of our system. We have to have something that's revolutionary. And I, the word revolution conjures up, you know, scary images and all. But uh, we need to have a real democracy. We need uh, black people, first of all, have to know this history and have to not repeat some of the mistakes we've ma made in the past, as uh, we touched on before. Uh, with showing loyalty to people who are feeling like we can't make demands and we can only support people who hate us less. That has to, that has to end. And, uh, but we also have to remember the liberation movement was crushed, you know, COINTELPRO and the assassination. So um, uh, there are lessons to be learned there, but uh, I think now there's a, a really fundamental crisis in the country. Uh, that has to be addressed and we can't see it as you know now the obsession is getting rid of Trump Trump on the brain and we've got to get rid of him and my argument is with Trump himself uh, the fight has to be against the Democratic Party it is completely the fault of the Democratic Party that Trump is in the White House and this this crazy impeachment this phony impeachment where the Democrats gave Trump everything he asked for, everything, the Space Force, the defense spending, the trade bill, border wall, all of it, and then go through this impeachment farce when they know the Republican-controlled Senate won't remove him. is just, but people are riveted and they're hoping that something will happen. But that is the kind of thing that happens when we have a system where one party functions for the majority and people who are in the minority are constantly scrambling to try to thwart that. Um, the book is, I, I learned a lot reading, yeah. writing the book. There were things, there were some details that I uh, uh, did not know. And um, like the, the details about Lincoln and his treachery. Uh, the fact that um, when uh, uh, Southerners got back into power, and thwarted Reconstruction. Even Republican presidents didn't defend black people who still clung to the Republicans. Right. Um, the uh, the degree to which the slaveocracy was defended. For example, I don't know if most people know this, 
why did they build a new capital city? There were cities already, Boston, New York, Philadelphia. Uh, Washington was inaugurated here in New York. Then they moved it to Philadelphia. Then they moved it further south. They wanted a capital city that was firmly in within the territory of the plantation economy. Why? There's no reason to build a new city in a swamp of all places. So we have a capital city of Washington, D.C. It exists for the very purpose of protecting slaveholding. And that's the sort of thing that nobody teaches us in uh, when we're in school. But it's the absolute truth. And the other thing I learned is the degree to which historians lie to protect these people. And uh, we have to stop. We have to stop, excuse me, accepting lies. And I, I think most Americans still want to defend the country. I remember when, uh, when Trump first came in and there was an uh, issue of the Confederate monuments. And Trump said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to take down, you know, Thomas Jefferson's statue? And there was a poll. Most New York Times readers said, no, no, don't take down this Thomas Jefferson statue. Well, then you're, you're telling lies. Um, but the degree to which the country owes its existence to enslavement and genocide is something most Americans don't want to acknowledge. And even liberals, they want to think, you know, they are nicer or what did Buttigieg, he was just caught having said a few years ago, telling school children, they didn't know slavery was wrong. Yeah, they did. But that's something people want to tell themselves. I don't think he was saying that to the little, just to the little kids. He was saying it to himself. He didn't want to acknowledge that truth. He's so obviously cynical and disingenuous. I mean, other people can get away with not being obvious about it, but. It's not, he can't hide it. He's not even good at hiding it. And uh, so, so that's, that's where we are. People want to be positive about their country, but that can also mean telling lies. And what I've learned personally is there are people we need to be positive about that we aren't told anything about. So, um, uh, for example, I grew up, I was never taught that the British, uh, in their effort to win the Revolutionary War, promised freedom to enslaved people who fought for them. So there were black people who fought for the British. And those can be, they can be our heroes. And uh, John Brown should be a hero. He's not some crazy guy. He lit the match that started the Civil War. He was trying to help enslaved people free themselves. So rather than saying, oh, I feel like I, you know, I, I have to respect Thomas Jefferson, find somebody else you should respect, you know, without reservation, you know, where you're not telling a lie. You can also respect someone's ideas and acknowledge that they were a hypocrite. Um, what was your process like? How did you go about writing it and researching it? And what was the thing that you found most surprising during your research? Well, it was, uh, there was a lot I did know. Then sometimes I would just, I was like, okay, what do I know about Millard Fillmore? I don't know anything about Millard Fillmore. Got to go to the library. So some of it's just very basic. I got to go to the library. New York Public Library, I always sing their praises. Uh, also use the Library of Congress in Washington. Everybody should go there. Take out a researcher's card. You can learn lots of things. Um is it weird to be doing research in a physical location as opposed to online? It was well, you know, it's what I did when I was in college because you know when I I'm you know I'm sixty years old, so that was all. <laughs> but it was it was kind of funny going back to that. It was like, oh yeah, I did this, I did do that. But it's it, you know online just uh, um, and physical books, both of all of it, all of it, and um, uh, after. Yeah, there were some things that just they're they're in a book. You you gotta gotta get to the library, and which was actually fun. It was hard work, but it was also fun. But writing is can be hard and and lonely. I mean, it's something by definition you have to do by yourself. So. Um, Uh, like letters from Andrew ja Andrew Jackson was worst. Uh, I uh, he was, um, you know, it's a funny thing. People talk about Americans talk about you know whether you know Russians will denounce Stalin or something. And I'm like, excuse me, we had Stalin's right here. This is the man who ethnically cleansed the indigenous people, who was a slaveholder himself, who ethnically cleansed the indigenous people for the express purpose of expanding the plantation economy. He was horrible. He, I would say, he was the worst 
I, I, I just by degree. Yeah, he, 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 what he did, I think, changed the country, created the country that we have now, frankly. Um, and uh, I don't necessarily mean that in a, in a, in a good way. I was surprised to find F. Fred, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, black people, my parents, you know, yeah. aunts and uncles, grandparents, all those, they loved FDR, loved him and Eleanor Roosevelt. What a bunch of, what a phony. He was very racist himself, personally. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt would, you know, be seen with black people enough to get black people's support. But uh, she wrote this, she had a column and one one of them was called If I Were a Negro. And she Oh my God, it's the worst thing. She said, if I were a Negro, I'd be, I'd be grateful that I didn't still live in Africa and I wouldn't ask for too much. And it was, it was horrible. I'd heard of it before, but, uh, but she gets credit for letting, you know, Marian Anderson sing at the Lincoln Memorial. So nobody remembers all the um, terrible things she did. And FDR, his excuse for an- not passing anti-lynching uh, legislation was I I need the Southern segregationists. Those were his out. I don't think he really cared that much. But he there's a story um, about Thurgood Marshall. Um, he went to see the Attorney General at the time to uh, a civil rights case, and uh, the Attorney General gets FDR on the phone, and FDR says to this man, he didn't know Thurgood Marshall was on the other end, or I didn't care. I don't know. He said. If you call me about Eleanor's niggers anymore, I'm going to fire you. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that we did. Um, uh, Eisenhower was a racist. You know, he did send the National Guard when the uh, school in Little Rock integrated, but he was opposed to school integration. He was opposed to integrating the military. Um, you know, the Kennedys were phonies. Bobby Kennedy hated the March on Washington. He thought people were going to use it against his his brother. So um, those are the um, the kinds of uh, of things I, I learned while while writing the book. Learn anything about policies that like were these were these things ever complicated by policies that were actually good? Uh, in other words, like I mean, the New Deal is really contested uh, because it had these things that obviously basically you know like loopholes. Yeah. And but it also did help a lot of, of working people, mm-hmm. black people, which right. doesn't mean the intention wasn't bad behind it. But how do you kind of I guess reconcile those things? Like it, can you can you say or do you see it as yeah, these policies were good and these policies should be done and the person who did it Well, the uh, the, uh, the most important thing I came away with is when Anything good happens, it comes from the people. It's always mass action that does it. There aren't any good presidents to think of who are going to save us. They all, when they did the right thing, it was always because they were forced to. Um, But to answer your question about the New Deal, um, the Social Security Act um, excluded farm work and domestic work, which was the work that most black people lived in the South, and that's exactly what most of them did. but of course, if you came up north and then you, you know, you uh, have a, a different kind of occupation, then of course you have this. Or the uh, GI Bill was administered by the state. So that means uh, very often black veterans were cheated out of their uh, benefits. Had it been, I'm, I'm sure there were enough in enough places who did get to use it, but um, people were cheated out of those things, even those things that were good, that... Um, uh, that came uh, as a result of protest. Um, and then, of course, there's the reaction. The reaction, the civil rights movement was very successful. So uh, black people gained the right to vote and discrimination became illegal, but then there's a reaction against it. So as soon as those laws passed, then they start filling prisons with black people. And I think uh, that's also a lesson. You have to think about what is the reaction going to be even when there is some success right and then of course you had like martin luther king being told by liberals black and white that mm-hmm. you should focus on the get like on on uh, civil rights issues not on poverty not on war no 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 so he you know the year to the day before his assassination yeah. he gave a speech at riverside church and he announced he was opposing the war in vietnam and he was vilified 
Uh, some of his own people were like, you can't piss off Lyndon Johnson. He's our friend. Uh, New York Times, Washington Post all said terrible things about him. Uh, and yeah, that's 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 your thing. Yeah, stay in your lane. Don't don't talk about foreign policy. So, um, you know, and that's a lesson too. People who are often the people who are upheld the most are not the ones who are really re representing the people. That's why they're elevated. So, um, so yeah, so those are are all the lessons. But um, I think black pol we need a return to black politics. We have black politicians, but not. We had a black president, but who never asserted it, that there was a black politics. Whenever he was asked about black people, I don't know if you ever noticed this about Obama. He always looked like he was irritated. Yeah. And um, he always, he said the same thing, rising tide lifts all boats. I'm going to help the economy. It's going to help everybody. And um, the impact of money in politics, they used to leave black politicians alone. And then they were like, wait a minute, we can't leave a group of people unbought, you know, so we got to buy them off too. Yeah. So now we have all these neoliberals in the Congressional Black Caucus, which used to be known as this very progressive body. Um, but that's why we have to we have to talk about changing the system in very fundamental ways. And I think, uh, even though I'm not a Democrat, I think we have to back people who are as left as we can get yeah. because they all go to the right a little bit when they get into office. Um, and uh, and I was thinking about the things. Uh, that Bernie Sanders talk, talks about, like free college. People act like that came from the moon. Yeah, I know. We had free college right here in New York City. CUNY was free. Yeah. California had free... The immigrants or yeah. something. Um, California had a free uh, public university system. Reagan got rid of it. So people act like this is something you can't do. It's like, oh, yes, it's like, no, we did this. We had these things. And um, but, you know, it's it's decades of anti-government propaganda, a lot of which is racist because many white people see government as black people. Right. You're giving money to black people, not. No, it's like I, I think most students at CUNY, most of those years were were white immigrants. They were Jews and Italians. And um, but uh, it turned into this thing that people turned against themselves. And it's racism is the tool to use it. I think it's the worst argument. It's so disingenuous, this argument that you hear from Klobuchar and, and Mayor Pete, like, it's not fair with universal free college tuition. It's not fair um, that poor people, you know, rich poor people shouldn't be paying for rich people to send their kids there. It's like, if you care about these things, you get that one, like, welfare queens. Like, there's a reason they talk about welfare queens, not social security queens. Right. Because when something's universal, you can't stigmatize it as much you can't um also you have buy-in from the wealthy many of them don't even don't use it but they still want it right like, and or you don't have buy-in but it's there and that's the right thing is to have it there and it's much less vulnerable to being cut when they can't you know, exactly present it as a handout or you know when it's a right well, it's like, I mean, if you take, if you followed that logic, you'd say, let's not, let's get rid of public libraries because rich people can use them too. It's like, let's not have public schools because rich people, they could, you know, there are places where rich people send their kids to public schools. Um, you could, I, you know, you could go on and on. If you look at something like Medicaid, uh, I think New York has the most generous Medicaid of any state in the country. And that's because everybody intends to use it. And it's not like in some places where it's the poor black people's insurance and, you know, it's very meager um, or social, the, uh, social security. Yes, millionaires can collect social right. security when they retire. So, yeah, it's not like all of a sudden we're going to have a flat tax and like, no. the poor need to pay more. No, not at all. Yeah. Like, God forbid that their taxes go to something that will disproportionately help them. Like, mm -hmm. when I say them, I mean working class um, work, you know, unemployed people, the pop, you know, impoverished workers, whatever, anything from like, so it's okay that they're paying taxes that go into war. And nobody says that. Nobody questions that. Yeah. Um, you know, why are we paying the military industrial complex? That's not fair. No one ever says that. It's like you should keep paying and pay and pay and pay. But uh, that argument, that, you know, or, you know, I paid my student loan and, you know, I'm like, well, I paid mine off. But guess what? I don't care if other people get a reprieve. I really don't. It's like, first of all, everybody who. 
every first of all it is always somebody who's my age and college was like so much cheaper and it's like for you to have paid off your student loans doesn't mean anything come on this is you know we're not talking about tuition that people are paying now but uh, this idea that this country is um it's hard for people to have solidarity with each other when people are pitted against each other. So uh, they have free universities and, and Germany. It's like you can just show up in Germany and from anywhere in the world and university is free. But um, we have turned it into this dog eat dog system and everybody's afraid of losing the little bit of crumbs they get. And they don't want anybody else to get their little crumb. So it's hard for people to have solidarity and say, this is something that should be a right for everyone. And it's a public good to have people to be able to get a, a university education without going into debt. So it's, it's, it bothers me really that that actually resonates with some people. That's the thing that, that I, I find very disturbing. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. Margaret Kimberly is an editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report, and she is the author of the book, Hot Off the Presses, Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents is a concise, authoritative exploration of America's relationship with race and Black Americans through the lens of the presidents who are elected to represent and govern all of its people. Cornell West calls it, quote, an intellectual gem of prophetic fire about all the U.S. presidents and their deep roots in the vicious legacy of white supremacy and predatory capitalism, end quote. Credential will be published by Steerforth Press on February 4th. She will be at Strand Bookstore in New York City Monday, February 3rd. She'll be at the People's Forum, New York City, Tuesday, February 4th. She'll be at Wooden Shoe Books, Philadelphia, February 11th. Sankofa Books, Washington, D.C., February 15th. Bus Boys and Poets, Washington, D.C., February 16th. Greenlight Bookstore, Brooklyn, February 13th. Uncle Bobby's, Philadelphia, February 20th. Harvard Bookstore, February 28th. Source Bookseller, Detroit, March 7th. And you can find out more information about these events at her Twitter, Freedom Ride Blog. Again, that's Freedom Ride Blog. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova.